0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, Immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastore. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's the turn of David Ebony, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all the other groovy stuff. One-time member of a New York band called The Erasers. I think it was a New York band. Anyway, you will find out more. Um, yes, they recorded various singles and various compilations and were part of that groovy scene that was on the east coast featuring such people as judy beach and jane fire susan springfield and a lot more anyway this is the interview and after several minutes of casual chat we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years david it's going to be over to you take notes i will test you at the end to make sure you're paying attention
1: I was very lucky that I was born outside of Philadelphia in a town called Morrisville, Pennsylvania. And as a kid, my brother, my older brother, was interested in music, so um, we he would take me to these incredible concerts. Like um, as even before a teenager, just when I was a very young kid, I saw Jimi Hendrix live um he took me to see led zeppelin wow at the um the spectrum in philadelphia you know could to see a show like that when you're a kid you never forget it and i have always loved led zeppelin since then
0: yes and um
1: and then um a little later also still very young in the 19 late 1960s my again my older brother took me to the Atlantic and my sister to the Atlantic City Pop Festival, which predated Woodstock and and about the same time as the Monterey Pop Festival. And um, there, well, Joni Mitchell would perform, but she walked off stage because the the crowd was too noisy. So that was disappointing. But then um, Procol Harum came on, um, and they were at that time promoting um, Shine On Brightly. Do you well, know that album?
0: Yes, and the one I probably know better is, is, is "Salty Dog."
1: Well, "Salty Dog" was right after that was the third album, and mm-hmm. so this, so they that was love at first sight, first hearing. I just love Procol Harum so much, and Gary Brooker, I thought was the best singer in pop music, and still do actually. I think he's he's you know it sounds really great, even now, in his advanced age um, so I follow them since then I saw them you know eight or nine times in concert and um so that that was a big influence um, Then, when I moved to new york i I was a professional musician for some years. I played keyboards and I co-founded a band with Susan Springfield and Jane Fire called The Erasers. Yes. Uh, it was a. We were on the CBGB circuit. We played Max's Kansas City a lot. Um, and then Jody Beach joined us. She's now married to Chris bedding And um, through Chris, I guess, well, we had a, there was a punk following for The Erasers. We were sort of like a pop punk band. We weren't you know, like the Ramones or we weren't like the Dead Boys or something like that. We were very pop, arty, arty pop. Yes. So, um, But we had this following that was very close to the punk movement. And then, um, you know, we were, you know, close friends with bands like the Necessaries and the Mumps and other kind of sort of the student teachers kind of under the radar kind of bands.
0: Yeah, and I guess this was kind of like 84, uh, 74 time, wasn't it? So there would have been bands like was well, Suicide had, had also appeared in like Suicide,
1: 70. we used to go see Suicide all the time. and We, we liked Alan and his wife was so nice. Um, but the show was, you know, so difficult for many people to sit through. And our early shows too, where a lot of people walked out of our early shows, we were just learning how to play to a a crowd, you know. I was the only one who had any um, classical music training. Susan Springfield was self-taught, and Jane Fire taught herself drums, although she did take lessons.
0: Yeah. And, were you Were you Were um, your parents kind of musical, or or you know? Um, no, no.
1: But we, uh, on my insistence as a kid, we they got a piano, and so my brother. My brother, sister, and I all took piano lessons. Um, I, I, didn't, I stayed the longest, about five or s- six years, maybe seven years at most. Mm. Uh, so I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was going after a classical music training. I was always sort of around popular music. Um, was this before your,
0: the, where were those lessons before the Procol Harum moment, by the way?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, no, this is, I was, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11. Right. The Procolhera mo- moment, I was maybe 14.
0: That must have blown your mind.
1: Oh, yeah, they absolutely did. And I saw probably Jimi Hendrix and um, and Led Zeppelin Was I was probably even younger, 13.
0: Yeah, that must have also blown your mind. My God, that's quite something. Yeah. I mean, what bands like... The- and then
1: the other one was Miles Davis, my Brother took us to the um, Academy of Music in Philadelphia, and we saw um, Miles Davis with another concert. I, I will never forget. He he was promoting Bitches Brew, yes, you know, which was a controversial album at that time.
0: Was that after um, my um, kind of blue? Was that was that the sort of had yeah
1: um... this, yeah it was when he went into a more rock um, experimental direction, and it got a lot of flack. He got a lot of, um, but then also gained a new audience. Younger people were yes. flocking to his concerts. But and my, my brother Glenn always liked jazz and also, you know, was a guitar enthusiast too. So we would always go to, to see the guitar bands.
0: Yes, Like Blimey.
1: Iron Butterfly and stuff. So all this, all this was before I moved to New York City and got involved in actually performing
0: Yes. Did you, um at that stage, when you moved to New York, was that as a, a musician or as a student?
1: Um, no, actually, Robin Crutchfield, who you also interviewed, um, we moved to New York City together. We right. were a couple at that time. And we just, um, I just graduated from undergrad school in, in New Jersey. And um, I think Robin dropped out of college. And we moved to New York. We got an apartment together. We started um, getting involved in the art scene right away. Robin started out as an artist. I don't know if he told you that. Yeah. Um, I know. cuz he was doing...
0: I was going to say, because well, you mentioned the mums, because I'd also done a... Was it Christian Hoffman? I don't know. Christian you, Hoffman, yes. yes. So were you... Um, my God, did you feel like you were on some sort of cultural zeitgeist at this point in your life?
1: Uh, yeah the energy was incredible, it was palpable and um every the, the creative spirit you know in in New York City, it was a time that the city was falling apart. Um, you know President Ford had told New York City to drop dead. the economy was really bad, parts of New York City were very dangerous at that time, especially the lower East side. But on the other hand, it made it affordable for a lot of young people to go. Like, I think Robin and I were paying something like $125 a month for our apartment. And so young people would were able to afford New York City at that time, which, you know, out of the question nowadays.
0: Well, yes, I, I did an interview with a guy who did the um, a book on the mud club. Um, and he, he told me how much he paid for his apartment. It was very cheap in New York and know, um, mm-hmm. obviously was the best thing he ever did in his life, actually. And also I did an interview with Martin yeah. from Suicide and I think, again, he sort of told me how cheap it was. So it it was kind of mm-hmm. the go-to place. And, and seeing documentaries on New York, I know it's a bit simplistic, but, you know, the fact that it slightly had been so run down and almost abandoned. But then it was kind of the birth mm-hmm. of punk disco and um mm-hmm. and rap you know so that's pretty that's a pretty you know to have all that happening in such a short spirit period of time mm-hmm. there must have been a lot of people kind of moving and shaking as they say or, mm-hmm. or Jared no, was jerry no it
1: wasn't and in the art scene too it was very important for performance art and this transition from away from minimalism to to more expressive figuration, figurative art. You had Jean-Michel Basquiat coming up and, you know, Julian Schnabel and those people. They they energised the, the art scene in, in a way that I guess was Keith parallel Her- to...
0: Was Keith Herring also part of that scene with Robert?
1: Keith Herring, yeah, Keith Herring, of course, Kenny Sharp, Those street art people, yeah, they... Well, because, you know, all the abandoned buildings were just a, a blank canvas for many of those artists, like um, Basquiat, who was, you know, his tag name was Samo. And then you had Keith Haring taking over the, all the blank wall spaces in the subways that had been used for posters, but because the economy was so depressed, Nobody was taking out advertising in the subway, so whenever whenever there was a blank poster wall, they'd put black paper up over it, and that's what Keith Haring, how he started out with his artworks with white chalk on that black paper.
0: God, that must be... And you
1: never forgot them. You know, once you're in the subways and seeing a whole subway station that Keith Haring, you know drew on you would never forget that either
0: yes well absolutely so with those bands that i've interviewed they you know they normally have a, a kind of one of those cliched you know five-year kind of relationships and they you know they get together and they have 12 months kind of hustling and trying to make a sound that that's a bit better than or a bit more interesting than what's kind of just around and then they do the first single and the first album and in in the uk you know we had kind of gatekeepers like this guy John Peel and the weekly music papers like the NME and Sounds. I mean, how did mm-hmm. how did your, you know, experience with the band develop during that period because it was kind of eight, uh, 74 time that it started with Susan and Jane and then you obviously appeared as well.
1: Um yes, you know, 75 we started performing 76 um, and it was a rough It was rough, you know, and I took a year off. I went to, I had had another boyfriend named Peter who I went to stay with in London, and he, he moved to London, his sister lived there. So I took almost a whole year off from the band. And we went to India, we traveled a lot in Europe that whole year. And then when I came back, Susan Springfield had kept the band alive, and they were doing, you know, pretty decent gigs and continued the CBGB circuit so Susan invited me to come back as a keyboard player to co-write songs for her yes. with, with her uh, for the Erasers so <clears throat> and did that, that was the beginning
0: I was going to say and did, and did writing songs were you doing the music and she was doing the lyrics
1: she did most of the lyrics yeah um, and she also played guitar so we would collaborate on the music also not, not only, I wasn't writing the music exclusively. No. <clears throat> she would often contribute.
0: And what was the, um, and with what was your experience of London like? Because I know I spoke to Anne, is it Anne Magnusson? And she sort of was a young person who came to London during probably quite a similar time as that and sort of was kind of blown away with the whole. You know it's London scene and the punk movement and and also it's quite probably a bit different to being in new york what was your your take on that that time?
1: Well, it was really incredible. I mean we were there during the jubilee, which was you know there was a lot going on and um we saw bands of ours, friends of ours from New York who were performing in london we would go see their shows like The Talking Heads. And um, you know, the Talking Heads and Ramones sort of started their tour around that time too, and became you know popular in in England. And then was a lot of smaller, a lot of clubs that we went to all the time, and saw lots of British punk bands who I forgot their names right now, but you know they also they were it was very and in, in very intense scene.
0: Yes, absolutely, and also I guess it looked very very small, and when you just went to India, which obviously is one of the great things that people did in that period, and probably in the eighties, and and especially in, you know during looking for spiritual awakening or some sort of adventure. Mm-hmm. How was your experience of India?
1: It was uh, it was it was a spiritual awakening. Believe it or not, we were on the last. Peter and I were among the last to go on what was called the Magic Bust. Have you heard of that? Okay, that something. started in in London and ended in New Delhi. And we were one of the last groups to go through Iran and Afghanistan before, you know, the Iranian Revolution happened shortly after. So we, we were really the last, one of the last groups of people to make that trek overland. That nice. was, you know, yeah, it was really fantastic. It was and I loved India, uh, but my fa- our favorites were Nepal and Sri Lanka. Spent a-, a month in each of those places, and India. I don't know. Have you been to India?
0: I didn't ever get that far. I stopped at Egypt, for some reason.
1: Oh, Egypt is wonderful too. But um India's hard work to travel around. You know, especially if you're you're on a, young and on a budget and not staying in a four star hotel, and so. You know, we'd always have an entourage of twenty-five p- kids following us everywhere we went, and it just wears you down. And be- you know, people begging for money and all of that. And then um, in India, I got he- I got sick. I got hepatitis, so um, that cut our trip short. We had planned to stay another month, but instead we flew back to to Germany first, and then to London before um, coming back to the United States. So I was kind of Forced off of that, <laughs> that big tour <laughs> yes um,
0: so, i was I was just going to say it was kind of um it was kind of interesting you had such an experience, I mean at that age, you know it must have felt strange getting back to you know getting back to basically um New York again after some of the sights that you'd seen
1: yeah, normal, yeah, it was very strange, it was strange. Um, the climate in New York had changed. There, there was still the intense artistic and music activity going on, but money started to enter the scene. You know, Reagan became president, and then all of a sudden New York started, started to revive, and various neighborhoods became gentrified. It started to get a little more expensive. So when I came back from that trip, I noticed that, I noticed that there was this difference of, of the kind of people coming to New York City and, and what was happening in the city.
0: Yes, and were you bumping into people like, I know I'd done some interviews with people who were in a kind of almost a rockabilly band called The Rockats, who had sort of come from Essex in England and gone to New York with a guy called Lee Black Childers, who was hanging out with people like Robert Mapplethorpe and Andy Warhol, and um, it just sounded quite a surreal scene as well.
1: Yeah, uh, I've heard of him, Lee Black Childers. Um, my rockabilly people were surrounding um, Robert Gordon because, you know, Chris Bedding produced him and performed with him a lot. So that was... Did you know, do you know Chris Spedding?
0: I do. He was a Womble... He he played with Mike Bat and and was a womble. Do you remember the Wombles by any chance, or was that something that's no? Well, they were kind uh, of fur, they were they were a furry kind of um, children's program, and apparently Chris Beddin was um, one of them. He played his, as a womble. I don't. I mean, that's one of those quirky things. If you googled Chris Beddin, you would sort of go, "Oh, that's that's interesting." He he dressed up as a furry uh, children's TV character, as well as you know. That's cute. It is very cute, as, uh, but then he... And
1: then would go to the studio with the Sex pistol And then go and play
0: and, and sort of hang out. And, and, uh, and I think, um, yeah, it was Chris Beddin the guy who also did a song about his mo- motorbike in... Oh, I can't remember now. Um, oh, that was his hit, yeah. Was it? Oh, okay, God,
1: I know. Have all... you interviewed him for your show?
0: Interesting enough, I was in touch with him last week and he said, Oh, yeah, definitely. But I'm moving house, give me a call next week. And I was like, Oh, yeah, I must do that. Oh, nice!
1: So, so nice. Well, give him my regards. Uh, because in, in more recent years, in 2015 actually, I wrote a song that Chris always liked from the 80s and it was called Gunshaft City. And, he, and um, he asked me who I would like to have sing on the song on his. Record, because he was doing a, a record of, um, of, of of guest artists, and it was called Joyland. The album is called Joyland,
0: mm.
1: and so I said just out of top off the top of my head, um, Brian Ferry, because I loved Roxy music always. My whole adult life I loved Roxy music. Saw them in concert many times, so I just thought it was like almost a joke, you know. And then a few weeks later, he emailed me and he said that um, Brian Ferry was going to sing the song on his album. So it is. So it's on this album called Joyland, and it's um, it's um, called Gunshaft City.
0: Yes, I can see this compilation that has. It has Johnny Marr and uh, Robin Gordon uh-huh. and Arthur Brown, the amazing Arthur Brown. So, yeah, so he is still there. And who's who? Did you say his partner is now?
1: Jody Beach, who was my bass player, and also she was a singer too and songwriter of sorts. We we actually, after the Erasers broke up in 1984, I think it was our last show, or '83. Um, Jody and I, for a couple of years, we did a d- duo act we performed at the mud club a couple of times opened up for john kale right um, that would be a nice interview for you too
0: god yes so look with the go just go back slightly to the erasers because um yeah do you, did you do much studio work or were you mostly just playing live
1: well we were signed by orc records Yes. Did you know about that work that compilation? Yes, and they've become very, it's oh. a very
0: hip one because I know there's a couple, there's there's Bop Records and then there was the other one, is it Z Records or? Yeah.
1: Um, well, when when you, when there were kind of two camps in, in the late 70s that were signing bands and one was Orc Records and that was the sort of more punk rock thing that they were interested in, uh, like television. Um, you know, Patty Smith was a big influence on everyone, too. I should not uh, under-emphasize how important Patty was, because she inspired Susan Springfield and the whole focus of the band, really. Um, and then Ork, so Ork had did her single Piss Factory, yes. and they so- started signing related bands for um, you know that were sort of a kinship with television, and he f- and and Terry Ork felt that way about the Erasers, and then there was this other camp, the No Wave group, groups that were um, DNA, you know the land, um, DNA and James Chance and. The contortions and those kinds of bands that were that were um, that Eno was attracted yes, to. Yes, because
0: he Eno had gone to New York and had done this compilation, and also there was yes, yeah, like there was is it Bush Tetra and Ut and Bush
1: Tetra, yeah, mm-hmm. very. edgy. And what were the other ones on that? That No New York that that came out on the No new york album that Eno you know, produced that was the so there were these two kind of camps i remember going to to restaurants like phoebe's and stuff and in, in in the village and there'd be a table a table with brian eno and his groups and then and then terry Ork and his groups it was very funny yes
0: and i guess. Um, but it was, it was there was people like Lydia what? what about Lydia Lunch and James Lydia Charles? Lunch,
1: yeah. Yeah, they were they were associated more with the No Wave group.
0: Yes. We
1: were we were considered to commor- potentially commercial <laughs> I guess for the New Wave group, but the irony is that they were wound up being more successful than us. So <laughs> that was funny too. Yes. Because work records, you know, our our manager uh, they, there, was it was just a mess, you know. We had one single out, it was called um, Funny, and that was on a compilation. It has been on many different compilations. It was um, What's So Funny, the song that they hear, and um, I Won't Backed by I Won't Give Up. That was our single. Yes. Um, and we went into the studio. I personally... Um, this was me personally. Uh, our producer was, was um, Richard Lloyd of television. Yeah. And he was selected by Terry Ork. And also my Susan really loved television and, and, and Richard Lloyd. But I didn't get along with him that well. So for me, the recording experience was not that fun. He, he was not a keyboard person he was just all about guitars and he was always sort of complaining about my keyboard sound and it kind of rattled me and I, I left one of the sessions and before the mix and I went to Mexico I couldn't stand it at the atmosphere in the studio to me I, I was not happy there so, um, when I came back I had been my keyboards were almost mixed totally out of <laughs> out of off the record it was funny i had to fight for some to get some of it back in it was, anyway that that's the every every one of the surviving erasers will have a different ta- uh you know point yes. of view of the the, re- the studio experience i just happened to have that relationship with richard lloyd but susan got along well with him and everybody else did jody beach did also
0: Yes. And was, um, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, that was the first time and most people, you know, don't have a great time somewhere down the line, but did you do any more recording with the band?
1: No, no, not, not with the band. I I have done other things on my own, just soundtrack kind of things, but no, that, the, that was unfortunately the one and only Recording sessions. What we did, a, I think it was a a week or th- four days or something in the studio. That was it for the Erasers, and then our work records kind of imploded or um, yes. just went out, just got derailed, and our our one of our managers, Odeed, and it was just a lot a mess. It turned into a big mess yes. around in the early. Eight- 83 or 84 Uh, it was over by 84
0: so because one thing that having spoke to a few people from that scene is is kind of it was a heavy drug scene were were members of your band were you keeping it together or was it a bit of a mess with that within within sort of
1: um we we all always kept our head above water and and had some I mean we liked our we liked get high too, like everybody else but I was always very afraid of shooting drugs so I never shot any drugs at all and so um, I think for, for us we were able to keep it under control more than other bands.
0: Yes, I would imagine because most of them must have all just at one stage <clears throat> they're pretty strung out really, Our they? guitar
1: our, our guitar player unfortunately Richie v- uh lore he he um succumbed to the white lady as they say and overdosed d- um but that was well after the erasers
0: yes was but, that um, was he the brother of Walter
1: Yes he uh, was oh. yeah. they spelled their last names differently by the way but um one H R and the other L U R E was what Richie used.
0: Oh, fair enough. Yes.
1: But yeah, that was unfortunate, and he was a very sweet person.
0: Yeah. So, did you have a moment in 83 or 84 when you all sat down and just said, let's give, you know, the band isn't really happening anymore?
1: Yeah. um, Have you interviewed Jane Fire? No. She was at the Erasers, she became, she was the drummer, she became our manager. After a while, and uh, I think after a while, she just couldn't handle it anymore. It was just, it got to be too oppressive. And the, as I said, things shifted at this time. Where was all about money? Um, managers got more aggressive. Club owners got more greedy. You know, our our take at our door take would. Dwindle, even though we had the same number of audience members, you know, as things like that started to happen, and it was all very discouraging. Yeah, And absolutely. so we all just so we went our separate ways. As I said, um, I did a duo act with Jody Beach, who's now Mrs. Chris Spedding. Mm-hmm. and um, and Susan and I also collaborated on a on a single we did a a single, it was an EP actually called "Tenant of the Room, Susan Springfield Band. And so she formed a new band. She wanted me to join that band, but I, I just felt like I I wanted to do something else and, um, and perform with Jody rather than going on tour with the Susan Springfield band, but, but Jane joined her. So the band kind of splintered up and, um Richie, the guitar player, did other music gigs and we just kind of went our separate ways. It was time. We 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 were we were in it for, you know, um
0: nearly ten years, eight I
1: guess. Year, eight, seven, about eight years yes. total. For it, me it's like seven having taken a year off.
0: Yes. good behavior but um and then sort of (laughs) then as the 80s um and then that was behind you then what what sort of how did you then navigate the next part of your kind of creative career
1: oh i decided after the whole experience to go back to college i went back to graduate school i went to hunter college and studied art history And I got a master's degree in art history, and then I started looking for jobs. And there was a proofreading job at Art in America magazine, and this was 1989, 1988. And I said, and my editor-in-chief at the time, Elizabeth Baker, she said, "If if you finish your master's degree, we'll hire you here. Uh, for for a full-time job assistant editor and I, I heard later that wasn't true that she was going to hire me anyway <laughs> <laughs> but I worked with her and, and Richard Vine who was the managing editor uh, took me under wing kind of I became a, um associate managing editor learned how to write really and to edit at that time so from 1990 to i 2015, um, I was with Art in America magazine.
0: Wow, that's quite something. That must have. Um... And I'm
1: still, I'm still a contributing editor. I still write for the magazine regularly.
0: Yes, all about the world of contemporary art. And did you within uh-huh. that? Were you able then to sort of? give yourself more focus in life and the ability to just kind of not relax, but just feel a little bit more like something a bit more stable.
1: Exactly. It's about stability. I think to do the crazy music scene like that, it's for the young. (laughs) I think what I, after, you know, you just want your life to be more stable after you're 40 or whatever, 35. I just wanted some stability in my life, and and a, a regular job with regular income that you could actually pay your bills with, and all that, and and know what your income is and stuff. Just stability. That's that's what it was.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: and plus, and I and I also there's such an incredible commitment to a band that you have to have, and and you always have to submit to what what the others want and all that. And I I wanted the freedom to be able to travel when I had a vacation and, you know, just to be my own person.
0: Yes, well, it is quite nice. And how did it feel? Because I know with, you know, all the members of that band, which is kind of an intense period of life, I mean, you all went different ways. And Susan became a sort of, was that um, a human rights lawyer as well? She
1: did, yep. She was specialised in immigration. Yeah, she was a brilliant, brilliant woman. Mm-hmm.
0: And how did? And then she. Yeah, we, and unfortunately, she died a couple of years ago, didn't she?
1: Yes, sadly and shockingly, of brain cancer. That's very terrible.
0: Yes, yeah. it's always a bit of a shocker.
1: Leaving did, behind three kids.
0: Yeah, I know it's the one. I've had a friend who died of brain cancer, and it's um, horrendous treatment and and sort of potential. Well, no, there's no potential. It's always like a case of slowing it down a bit longer and giving yourself right. a few more months. But it's it's kind of you're on a losing, you're in a losing gig really on that one, aren't you? It's never gonna it's never gonna end well, really. Did you manage to sort of catch up with the other members of the band occasionally through through those decades?
1: My, we're all Jody and Jane and I are still very close friends. I speak to Jody regularly. As I said, if you speak to Chris Bed and give him and his wife Jody my regards, and my very closest female friend is Jane Fire, our drummer, and we we were close, we were all, we all stayed in touch and we all respected each other's post erasers lives you know and careers and partners and all that
0: yes i mean uh, because i know a couple of years ago i think it was the guardian in in the uk did a big article on orc records and it's it's got a bit more i don't know kudos or traction now doesn't it Mm
1: -hmm. i mean it does and i think i think because young people now they look at that era they they're very curious about it, my I teach at the Academy, the New York Academy of, of Art, and some of my students who, you know, they were very much interested in that late seventies, early eighties period. I think it was the last sort of rebellious time, maybe, or you know, intensely creative time before before commerce took over. You know.
0: Yes, and, and
1: so, so they're very much interested in what that was all about, and I think that's what the why the Orc Records package is doing so well, and and there's so much attention to that that time.
0: And also, actually, because your two singles or the yeah that double, all those two tracks that you um, release on that compilation, they've had quite a lot of play actually, haven't they, and and sort of got a lot of. I suppose they're there on Spotify and various other streaming sites so I'm sure people keep yeah. keep sort of finding them and um yeah and what I've also noticed and and it, especially doing this show that there's a kind of a period of time which is normally about 25 to 30 years where I think when things happen we just go whatever and it's normal because it's normal. And then you get on with the rest of your life. And then it's a period where you start not just looking back with rose tinted sunglasses, but just kind of a, a reflection and, and sometimes looking at it, you know, both kind of critically in a positive way as well as just kind of analysing it and some and sometimes realising it's I don't know, sometimes better than what I remember. Not you know sort of i mean some of the music i've listened to from the 80s that i missed the first time it's definitely better than i can you know uh, that i would imagine you know and, and and i noticed that there's been quite a lot of films that have come out from ba- about bands or different scenes in the 70s and 80s and and there was like three or four books that came out as well one on the texas punk scene another one on the boston sort of new new wave punk scene and then there was another guy called gary Green, who did a book called *When Midnight Comes Around*, which was all his photographs and CBGBs and the Mud Club, and um, Max's oh. Kansas City as well, and I, I think oh. people had these photographs and went, "Oh, they're nice," but no one really cares about them. And then, you know, three decades later. I think they find the shoebox with these negatives and pictures, and then someone goes, mm-hmm, some yeah. some publisher goes, actually there are quite a lot of interest in this kind of world now, and and off they go because there's yeah. a, another writer is his name Luke Locke or Luke
1: Santa, yeah, and he just yeah, brought a he book was the out. Hip
0: He was very hip and trendy, wasn't he? And he's just compiled his book of writing from that period and, you know, that's been getting great, you know, kudos. And Lydia Lunch has got her podcast that she does now and that sort of, you know, has kept certain interests in that world of, you know, televisions. And then obviously... um, yeah, the 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 rockabilly sound.
1: What was the, what was the Green Book by Green you mentioned, the photo book?
0: It's a photo book. I've got it actually just in my hand. It's called When Midnight Comes Around by Gary Green and it's on a I can always send you the link to the um the piece, but it's it's kind of, you know, he he obviously just done enough book pictures from 1970 76 to 1986, and it's kind of, um, yes, hmm. featuring so, people that you'll probably recognise. Patty Smith, okay. Joe Jackson, yeah, for that. and lots of other people hanging out, and Joey Ramone. Did you ever come across Danny Fields, by the way?
1: Oh, Danny Fields, yeah, but I didn't know him that well. Because um, there was even no. a
0: documentary on Netflix about Danny, wasn't there? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I didn't know him. Probably Chris
0: knew him. I would have thought so. Um, he, he became slightly famous. So, so, so with that kind of in mind, I mean, if there was something that you could have said to your 16 or 18-year-old self, you know, that could have given you some sort of words of wisdom with all the experience and decades that you've had, is there anything that you would have just wanted to, um, yes, offload and say, look, listen to this kid, this could change your life?
1: Um, I don't know how to respond to that really, except to, to take advantage of every opportunity that you can. I mean, some people I know when they get older, like my age, they talk about regrets of things they did. My, the regrets I have are always things I didn't do, you know, didn't make this effort or didn't, didn't meet somebody I could have met, you know like my favorite artist, British artist, is actually Graham Sutherland. Do you know his work? No. He was actually actually the mentor of Francis Bacon. And I had a correspondence going with him for years. And he invited me to come, well, I was in London at this time. He wanted me to meet him at the National Portrait Gallery because there was a big show of Graham Sutherland portraits. He was famous for his portraits and i and I didn't go, and that haunts me today that I didn't go and then I kept thinking i'll I'll meet him some other time, and then he died in nineteen eighty um abruptly suddenly of um he had an a botched operation, and so I never had that opportunity so it's things like that that i that I regret yes. when, I, when I think like that. So I would just say to young people take advantage of it. everything that interests you pursue it and if anything comes up any opportunity comes related to that go for it take advantage of it don't don't hesitate or think that some something's going to come around again you know what cuz it doesn't
0: No this is true. It never, nothing ever comes round again, does it? If you missed uh, it the first time, the chances are, it's gone. It's gone uh-huh. and it's sailed down the river, actually. Are you in, you know, from from sort of your experience and, and what's happened, are you sort of in the best place that you have kind of ever been, would you say, in your life?
1: Um, I'll say yes and no. I mean, one of the things that I hate about this pandemic is this idea of not being being able to travel and my current husband, Bruce and I, we go, we travel abroad at least once a year and we haven't been anywhere in two years now. And that, I hate that. It's like, it's this horrible feeling of, of not being free really. I mean, I know we can travel a bit more now. I mean, it's, it's things are are loosening up again, but that, I don't like this particular moment in, in, that's surrounding me. Also, I have to say, one of my early boyfriends, um, Diego Cortez, he was a curator and artist and and also a musician. He just died recently, and so I'm no. So no, I'm not in the best place I've ever ever been. I'm, I have a happy home and a, a you know caring, loving partner and a, a nice house in in the country and i I still have my place in brooklyn but there's i don't feel comfortable about the the zeitgeist of this moment
0: no no that is a bit it's a bit of a difficult one isn't it really yes god well hopefully things might slightly ease up but yes we it's a weird time it is a weird time isn't it yeah and
1: it's so difficult for so many people and you know, it's just it's just a difficult time.
0: Yes, absolutely. Well,
1: well how would you how how would you answer that
0: question? Hmm, it's interesting, isn't it? I think at the moment, it feels like it was probably better a few years ago than it is now. I feel a bit like everything's. It's not quite gone as beautifully as it was going. But also there's other aspects that start to happen. One's own health starts to struggle a little bit. And and my parents are getting a bit older and and they're obviously yeah. starting to struggle a little bit, more, bit, little bit. So every time I speak to them, I'd say that there's always a conversation about them going to the doctors and some ailment. And so, you know, I, I kind of hear about all the medication my dad's on and his next doctor's appointment and his next hospital appointment and you know and the weird thing is I suppose is that when I go and visit them and they quite like going out and have little trips and and I noticed that one thing we do now is is go they kind of visit their friends but it's a little bit strange because it's that means going to graveyards and and seeing their great uh, you know, these people's graves uh, you know yeah. they and mm. they and, and it's almost like they go twice they go when the person's just been buried and, and they look at the grave and then they go back a year later to see the headstone where the person was and pay their respects wow. and it is a bit strange because I, I suppose being in a graveyard and some of them especially because they we we come from a village is that actually most of the people I know you know or quite a lot of them and the, and my parents know virtually all of the people who are in that graveyard and I'm, I'm thinking that's a really strange that must be really strange you know and I I find it a bit strange now because when you're younger, you know most people you know about a few people who have died, and then suddenly you realise, my God, yes, I remember all these people on this row here, and oh, most people on this row as well, you know. And so, yeah, it's a strange one, village life. Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit humbling yeah. at the moment. I think mm-hmm. I would say.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I'm of the generation that survived AIDS too, so I I saw you know my best friend dying in his late 20s. You know, so many people died at that time. Duncan Smith and, you know, having, seeing really young people. Die. It's different seeing older people when, I don't know, they've had a big life, but when, I don't know, the AIDS episodes, that was maybe the worst, the AIDS years. Yes. In the 80s, late 80s. That
0: would be an absolutely my Yes, it's hard to imagine. I mean, it's, yeah, it is interesting hearing more stories about that period and, um, yeah, and empathizing with it rather than, yeah, just kind of Mm -hmm. couldn't, you know, it's hard to imagine what it would have been like. You hear the stories, don't you? But, um, and then sometimes you see films and documentaries and it's, it's, it it kind of blows you away. Because at the time, it's, I suppose I was slightly young, so it was a bit abstract and it was also in New York and, and, yeah, I mean, and that whole movement, you know, the the papers in this country were still a bit horrible. Well, just a bit. <laughs> they were really horrible about the whole thing, so their tone wasn't particularly sympathetic or empathetic. So um, mm-hmm. it was a bit, yeah, horrible, really. But, yes, look. Well, look, David on that sad note. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you ever so much. And if you want, yeah, well, I can... Well, thank s-
1: you. You're a very good interviewer, I have to say, <laughs> because I I conduct interviews myself. You're very... You put me at ease right away somehow. I don't know how you did that.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, you know,
1: there you go. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so but it's very good. So
0: And that, dear listener, well, I think I better edit it one time. So I'll leave it at that point before we sort of uh, mumble a bit more. Um, But a massive thank you to David Ebony for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random but enjoyable and nice reason, you can on Facebook... Twitter, Instagram, just do C86show. Also, all these interviews, hundreds, literally hundreds of interviews, mostly from bands in the kind of 80s indie world, but there's an obsession with David Bowie in there as well, um, are all archived. And you can um, listen to them if you're really excited. Um, Just go to Spotify, iTunes or Podbean, do C86show. And that, dear listener, is all you have to do. Anyway, look, have a great week, stay safe and, um, yes, tune in, turn on and enjoy future shows. That's what I'm going to say. I'm going. Bye.